right, welcome to day 104 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're looking at Deuteronomy chapters 21 and 22, Proverbs 9 verses 13 through 18, and Luke 16, 1 through 18. All right, so Deuteronomy 21. The first thing that we see in today's passage is in the case of a, of a man who is found slain in an open country. And uh, so here, first of all, the ambiguity is... Uh, which city is closest? So who is, who are the ones who are going to be uh, responsible for dealing with this? And uh, not surprisingly, it is the city that is the closest. And so in that case, the way that this is deal, dealt with, at least in terms of the atonement that must be made, and this is another one of those cases where atonement is made by something other than technically like a, a sin offering on the altar or a guilt offering on the altar, uh, in this case, a heifer that has been unworked, so no yoke has been laid upon its its neck, is is to be brought into a a valley of uh, apparently a valley with running water. If you know what a wadi is, there's a uh, it's this, this valley that um, seasonally kind of fills with a stream of water, a nachal etan, as it's called in Hebrew. Uh, this heifer is brought down there and is and its neck is broken. Um, and the Levites come forward, and the elders of the city then wash their hands and testify what you find in verses 7 and 8. Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Accept atonement, O Yahweh, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. Um, uh, which is a little bit interesting, right? Because... In this situation, right, normally if, if someone murdered someone, that person would be the one responsible for it. That would be the person uh, for whom if atonement was going to be made, atonement would need to be made. And indeed, that is the way that Numbers 3533 explicitly says it needs to be dealt with. You shall not pollute the land in which you live for the blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. Except in this case, you don't know who shed it, and so and it's not okay for them for the elders of the city to just be like, well, we don't know who did it, so we kind of, um, you know, nothing we could do about it. This is just an unsolved murder. And no, there there is still um, there is still need for atonement to be made because this is a human life that has been taken, and and this and it's not just like the only thing we could say about it is that it's an unsolved murder, and so this is how. The, the city uh, that is um, responsible for making atonement for this in the absence of knowing who actually did it is, is to handle that. Um, a bunch of other uh, laws that are you know, loosely related are then given, and that kind of dominates the rest of what we'll, we'll see here in Deuteronomy this morning. <clears throat> and there's a bunch of challenging ones, so I'm trying to move a little bit quickly so as not to make this episode too long. <laughs> But um, we do have this, this situation here where um, war has happened and a city has been destroyed. And um, I, I don't think we, we have to keep in mind the historical context, right? That this is, uh, I don't think we should be envisioning here Israelites going out and like forcefully destroying um, other cities um, just with these imperialistic ambitions. A lot of times these wars happen for, for various different reasons. 
And when you read through your Old Testament, you see that that many, many times it is not Israel who is the aggressor. It is uh, these these are often in response to, to to wicked things that that foreign rulers have done. And at any rate, the that the battle has happened, and there are women who survive there, and those women it is allowed for in the law can be taken into an Israelite household. Now, this of course is a law that definitely makes us scratch our heads as to the the morality of the situation behind it. Um, but I think, as with some of the other laws this morning, like we shouldn't be filling in the blanks with things that that we don't know. okay, what what we do know is that the um the woman in question here is pretty much left destitute, okay? Her city's been destroyed. Her husband has been killed in battle, and she's vulnerable in many different ways, including being vulnerable um, to other men who are, you know, not Israelite as well. And uh, we we also have to be careful not to import these kind of modern ideals that we have, where marriage and children is just something that you can or can't do, and it's it's sometimes even looked at as as a, a, a kind of a repressive type of life that that's not the way anybody in the ancient world thought like the 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 highest dignity that a woman could could have and then a man could have right is is the the family and the perpetuation of their family name and 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 making a home for themselves and for their children and for their descendants and this woman has been robbed of this and and the the Israelite man now is 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 able to um, to take her in and to and to provide that for her. Um, of course, it's it's not to say that the only motivation is is truly altruistic, right? Like the a man, um, you know, desires this woman as his wife, obviously. But you know, from her perspective, we need to remember that this is. This is a woman living in the ancient Near East, not a woman living in modern day America. And um, that's not to say that like human rights are different for them or anything, but their values, what they consider important um, is also important. And just because we think of things a certain way does not mean that they thought of the same things the same way. Um, but a woman in this kind of situation is to be is to be given a period of mourning of one month and uh, also says that she's to shave her head and to cut her nails. And it's a little, um, there's some di- back and forth as to what exactly that means. Is that a mourning right in and of itself? Or is the idea that she's to make herself sexually unattractive um, during this time period? Uh, it's not not too clear, but that is what she is um, is permitted to do. And in the event that a divorce happens, uh, she's not to be treated as property and sold. She's allowed to go, as it says, wherever she wants. So um, that is the law governing uh, that situation. We also have here um, that there's to be no preference for children of a favored wife. I've mentioned this before, um, but uh, polygamy was definitely a thing in the Old Testament. And um, there's more that can be said about that. It often does have these disastrous consequences, as we've already seen in, in various scenarios. Um, but it's not uh, God doesn't come out as like hard against this until the the New Testament, and a bunch of people who are who do live fairly, or I should say, relatively exemplary lives, do have more than one one wife a lot of times, and we, we see that like with Moses, we see we've, we see that with David. 
Um, but in the case that this this is the situation, the law prohibits you from favoring the child of your favorite wife just because you like that child's mother more than the other one. Um, and the, 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 the idea of a loved versus an unloved wife, we've talked about that idiom before. It doesn't mean that you have no affection for the wife or that you like literally hate her. It's, this is the, this is a way of saying loved more. Um, so in, in this case, the, the wife who is loved less, her child is actually the firstborn. Well, you're not allowed to say, well, I like the other woman more, so I'm going to give the double inheritance right of the firstborn to the woman that I, I care about more, the woman I favor. Um, <clears throat> after that, um, you have um, other other various laws, such as the law of the disobedient son, who is called a glutton, drunkard, stubborn, rebellious, that... Um, that that this can be this this uh, kind of recalcitrance that despite discipline this child or rather this this young man uh, kind of like refuses to live a, a righteous and good life that the, his parents actually have the opportunity to um, to appeal to the elders of the city um, for for capital punishment here. Um, I think this is one of those laws where you do have to ask, how many times this actually would have been used? A lot of these laws, you have to keep in mind, a lot of law in general kind of right becomes deterrence and incentive. The, the fact that uh, obedience to parents and listening to their instruction is so important and you have such consequences at least available if, they, if, if you do not. We see the way in which, in which crimes that have certain punishments do to do tend to be a lot less in a society. So yeah, I think I think we do have to ask how how often would a law like this have actually been used? Um, is it one that is is more of a say added kind of extreme, albeit incentive, uh, for a, a child who is inclined to disregard their parents' uh, instruction? And uh, I just want to note there's there's also a lot of other. Uh, kind of obligations that are being shirked here. Apparently, um, the families were very dependent on each person working, each person kind of pulling their own weight. And if you have somebody who's just kind of gone and is and is living this indulgent lifestyle and not uh, contributing uh, to their family, the entire family is suffering. So you have you do have to put it into into context. Um, <clears throat> Next up, you have a law about a person who has committed a, um, a capital offense, and as a result of having committed the capital offense, they are cursed by God, um, and and they are killed. Well, that person is, in some circumstances, um, hung on a tree. Their body is is displayed, um, perhaps as a warning, or and right this does and this law doesn't say you have to do this. This what this says is. <laughs> Is in the in the instance where you have done this, where for for a variety of different reasons, any reason someone might do that, it's this is not to be the case where you just leave this body up until the vultures pick it apart and everything, just undignified and as as a display, as was often done in the ancient world, as kind of like a warning, right? Like, no, you're not to do that. You're to take it down, um, so as not to defile the land. Um, 
And so this, I think it's worth noting, by the time we get to the first century, is understood within within um, Second Temple Judaism to be a, a applicable to crucifixion, which is probably one of the reasons why those who sought Jesus's death did not simply ask for him to be beheaded or burned at the stake or something. No, they wanted him crucified because they, uh, at least there, it was understood that that indicated, on the basis of this text, that that person has been cursed by God. They wanted to be known that Jesus was was not only rejected by them, but also cursed by God. Um, okay. Um, then you have um, various domestic laws given in chapter 22. So um, the example here that's given is an ox or sheep, but really any lost property of significant value um, you are to give back to your neighbor. And if you don't know whose it is, it remains in your house until he seeks it, but there's no kind of like finders, keepers. You are to restore uh, what you have found that belongs to your neighbor. Uh, there is prohibition against cross-dressing. A man is not to dress as a woman and a woman is not to dress as a man, but rather they are to maintain um, the the gender identity that the Lord has given them indicated by uh, by their, their, their birth. Um, after that, you have um, one of these uh, prohibitions that we've seen before against uh, doing kind of extreme things to animals. Um, so here the the case is you've ta- you're you're collecting eggs from a bird's nest. You're not to take the mother bird as well. Um, there's also perhaps a sustainability thing that's going on here as well. After that, um, people spent a lot of times on roofs in ancient Israel. Um, and so you, 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 you have a responsibility to, to build a, a parapet or a kind of like a guard around the roof to protect the people who are up there. And oftentimes when people talk about like what kind of things can we glean from Old Testament law when we're like extracting principles from it, this is one that is often cited as a case in point that if someone is on your property, say they're riding in your car or they're at your house on your deck or something like that, that your, your stuff should be safe. Uh, you do have some responsibility for people who are um, under your care, as it were, because they are they're on your property. Um, you also have three laws here that have to do with mixing. And we've spoken about this before, p- particularly with the justification or apparent justification for some of the cleanliness laws, um, uh, these, these taboos and 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 things that kind of just uh, fit into this Israelite mindset, which I've often talked about as, as believing in this ordered world, this world very ordered by God. And so you put one thing here, you put another thing here. God said, made things after their kinds. And, and right, so it's like this very ordered creation and Israelite life, everyday life is to reflect this. So um, you cannot sow a seed, a field with two different kinds of seeds. Uh, you are not to plow with an ox and a donkey at the same time. And um, the clothes that you wear, too, um, you're not to mix different types of fabrics. So wool and linen in the same garment. Um, Also, you have tassels. Uh, Again, apparently, as we've seen, like, for example, in Numbers 15, although the words are different there, they're tzitzit. Here, they're gedalim. But it seems to be the same thing. These things on your clothing that are to remind you of your devotion to the Lord, these, these mnemonic reminders. Okay, and then after that, we have a bunch of laws re- regarding um, sexuality and um, the transgression of sexual boundaries. So the first is in the case of a of a of a married couple, where the where the husband 
suspects his wife of not being a virgin on their wedding night. And in this case, if he makes this accusation the par- and the parents are able to provide evidence of her virginity, I'll leave it to your imagination as to what that might be, um, the man is, and it's so he's shown to have falsely accused her. That's a serious thing. And he's to be whipped. He's to pay a hundred shekels of silver, which is a lot. And, um, and he loses his right to divorce her. Uh, if, you know, stuff should go south and, and he believes he has reason for that, um, which would have curbed severely the amount of times where a man who is uh, probably sexually inexperienced and not really able to discern such things as, as well as we might think, um, it would really have limited the amount of times that people actually would have, a man actually would have accused his wife of doing that. But we also see here that if it is indeed the case that um, sex outside of marriage has happened, that is a capital offense. And, and so the woman is subject to that. And that kind of runs as a, as a theme throughout these, these sexual laws here at the end of Deuteronomy 22, that uh, adultery is a capital offense in, in Israel. As, as, of course, we see in verse 22, a man found lying with the wife of another man, both are both being you know, consenting parties. Uh, this is a capital offense in Israel. And that happens, um, uh, you know, if, if it happens in a city, you know, that, that still maintains. However, if the woman does cry out and it, you know, makes it clear that this is, this is rape that is happening, right? He is, is forcing her against her will, then, then only he is to be um, subject to capital punishment, um, and notice the issue here, as well as with a few of these subsequent laws, is that he's lying with a betrothed virgin. Virgin, He's committing adultery with her. Rape in and of itself is not a capital offense, okay? Adultery is a capital offense in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, and likewise, rape is not a capital offense in our society either, right? That's not to say it's not a serious crime, but um, you're, not, you're not killed for it. Um, so even if maybe, maybe some of us think it, it should be, okay, that's, that's a debate we could have. Um, but, um, you know, obviously a ter- you know, a terrible, cowardly, disgusting, despicable act, and it should be punished severely, but, um, you know, it's not a capital crime. And now, now if this happens the, the next law verse, verse 25 and following, uh, if this happens in an open country, um, only the man, uh, is to be is to be uh, killed is to, the woman is actually given the benefit of the doubt um, that because because there's not even op- an opportunity for her to cry out so like how would you even how would you even know that um, that that she whether or not she was a consenting party um, and then fi- next up you you have a law that's a little bit more challenging but I again I think. I think as with uh, some of the stuff we looked at a few minutes ago, you do have to just kind of keep in mind the whole context here. So if if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, so this is uh, this is not a case of adultery, right? Um, and he seizes her and lies with her. The seizing and lying um, seems to indicate rape, Um it, but but it's not adultery, right? Because it's a woman who's not betrothed. So he's not killed for it. But what happens? Well, he has to give her father 50 shekels, which is a which is 
a hefty payment that is that is that is a very high price and he has to take her to be his wife because he's violated her and so what is going on here is um if a man does this to a woman um he puts her in a devastating situation in which he essentially uh, it might not be too much of an exaggeration to say he ruined her life um she has has no um she's going to be a lot less um desirable of a bride um to families um and remember this is a law governing both believers and unbelievers so both people who who have whose hearts are soft towards this kind of situation as well as those who are hard but that is the reality of life that these laws are are governing right um it's not like you can force someone else to to marry to marry her um and she may very well be pregnant so he has to now commit himself to her for life he also loses his right to divorce her so permanently so if you do this to a woman she is your wife for life and um and not only that but i think it's also important for us not to import assumptions that we have about um about uh the situations that prevailed in the ancient world. What I mean by that is this assumption that women did not have the right to initiate a divorce. I see nothing in the Old Testament to indicate that, um, that, that, that women did not have that right in ancient Israel. In fact, in ancient, other ancient cultures, we can see that they clearly did. For example, if you know what the law of Hammurabi is, that is a Babylonian law that actually predates Deuteronomy, but has a lot of interesting parallels to it. Um, there, you clearly have, like in Law 149 of Hammurabi, uh, if a woman does not wish to remain in her husband's house, then he shall compensate her for the dowry that she brought uh, with her from her father's house, and she may go. Um, so there is a clear instance of a woman uh, initiating divorce. And there's other things that, that, that speak to that, um, that reality as well. Um, and notice that not only there is she initiating divorce, but she's actually allowed to, to, to receive her dowry back. Um, and I think although like in later Israel, in later Jewish culture, it does appear to be the case that, that women were not permitted. That's not something you get per se from the law of God. That's not something you get in, in, in the Bible. That's, that's later human interpretation of that. But in terms of what we actually see in the Old Testament, you need to realize that it is an unbased assumption to think that a woman could not initiate divorce. And so the idea here would be that the woman has the option, the the woman is the one who's actually given the choice here. So she is given in marriage to this man, but she also has the right to to leave him if, if, if need be. So all I'm saying is we, we just have to be careful with laws like this to not make unfounded assumptions about things. And then finally, you're not allowed to sleep with your father's wife. Presumably, this would be a stepmother. Um, and here it is called uncovering your father's nakedness. All right, let's go to Proverbs chapter 9. Um, so in Proverbs chapter 9, verses 13 through 18, here's something interesting because we've heard from Lady Wisdom a lot, right? How she calls out in the streets. But here we hear from Lady Folly, who also calls out in the streets, also calling out to the simple, 
to those who are impressionable. Listen to me, listen to me. And um, uh, and she is in, inviting the simple to eat, um, to have stolen water and, um, and bread eaten in secret. Um, and but doesn't realize that the other people who have come, who have accepted her invitation to be her guests are dead, right? She has brought death to them. Um, all her ways lead to Sheol, as we saw in chapter seven. Um, a, a good case can be made that there's actually sexual connotations of what's going on here. So this may be the folly that is encapsulated in this adulterous woman whom we saw both in chapter five and in chapter uh, seven. Um, in fact, um, in, in chapter five, uh, verse 15, uh, you have the notion of, of stolen water. So drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well, right? Don't go and sneak and, and take your, 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 your husband's, uh, your neighbors rather. That is a, uh, clearly a metaphor there for, for adultery. And so, um, that, that may be the case here. Um, also want to want to note the parallel here with uh, verses four and five with Lady Wisdom's feast. Whoever is si simple, let him turn here, just like Lady Folly says. Whoever in verse sixteen, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says. And then again in verse fifteen, and to him who lacks sense, she says. So this is a parallel here. And what does Lady Wisdom invite? Um, you to have bread and wine, whereas here all that is being offered is um, bread um, eaten in secret and water. So the, perhaps the idea that the feast that Lady Folly ab ab is actually able to provide for his, her guests is uh, not only brings death, but it's also much more mediocre than what Lady Wisdom is able to provide. Let's go to Luke chapter 16, uh, where we have what is probably one of the most confusing parables that Jesus tells. And so the idea is you have a household manager, an oikonomos, who is uh, uh, probably a, a slave um, a, a high, of high status, high standing, right? He's, he's entrusted with um, uh, the, the master's business matters, and he's been um, wasteful with his master's possessions and is called to give an account. And so this guy then acts in a way that is is considered shrewd. So knowing that he's he's going to need some other way to provide for himself, he then goes and at, at his master's expense starts to um, do dishonest but dishonest favors for people who owe his master. So and these are these are big quantities. Um, that he's talking about. So he goes to the master's debtor. The first guy owes him a hundred measures of oil. He says, "Take your bill and write fifty. The guy, you know, and the guy's like, "All right, you know." And a uh, hundred measures of wheat. Take your bill and write eighty. So he does that, and the master finds out about it, and he commends him for his uh, the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then uh, Jesus says, "For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation." Than, that, than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so then when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So it's like, what the heck is going on here? Um, and indeed, many interpretations have been offered um, of this parable.
Well, well, one thing, first of all, that I think is important to note is that the idea of shrewdness is seems to be, uh, you, you know, kind of like wisdom in this world uh, being um, uh, seizing the moment, taking um, uh, taking full advantage of uh, the, the, the cards you have been dealt, perhaps. The shrewdness is what Jesus com- commends him for, not his dishonesty or his unrighteousness here. Um so that is an important thing that the that the that the connection point, the thing that Jesus is is um, appears to be commending here, is this man's shrewdness. And I actually think that kind of like the key to interpreting this parable is actually what is said after that, where it talks about one who is faithful in very little is faithful in much, one who is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. And then look at verse eleven. Uh, if if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you uh, to the true riches? So I think the idea is basically this. Okay, the time is short. You are going to be called into account, called to account soon. What are you doing with the measure of responsibility that God has given you? Are you being shrewd in it? Are you really using the opportunity, the limited time that you have in this world? Um, to do what is in your best interest ultimately, right? Because, you know, those you, you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, right? And, um, and in fact, that, that, that is kind of like the idea that Jesus is, is getting at here. Again, I think is a little com- um, bit confirmed in what he says in verse 8, where he says, the sons of this world are more shrewd in g- dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So I think what he's talking about, the, the sons of light being kind of like, quote unquote, the sons of light. So you Pharisees, you lawyers and, and you scribes and you who follow them, right? Like the, the people who do stuff like the guy in this parable are more, um, are more able to, to act in their own best interest than you guys are um, because, because you are totally squandering the life that God has given you by thinking that it's all about these purity laws. It's all about um, this kind of like legalistic attitude that you guys have and this judgmentalism and stuff where when you're not really, um, you're not really being wise. Um, think of the criticism of the Pharisees, right? Like you, you spend all this time learning the law and you think that, 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 that this is all has to do with like your outward appearances Um no, it has to do with what's in your heart. It has to do uh, with whether or not you're you're loving those whom you're sent to shepherd, and 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 are are you ultimately are you bringing them to me? Being that the kingdom of God is now here in me, no, you're 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 not being shrewd with the things that that the Lord has given you, the cards He has dealt you, as it were. Um, are you being quote unquote shrewd? And then it, it does really start to turn in, in what is said um, subsequently. It does really start to to turn to like very much like kind of financial stuff, right? Like how you're viewing the resource of money, the resource of wealth, um, because it goes it goes right on to the to the to the end here that you know if you're not faithful with with what you've been given. Um, that is another what another has given you, which is interesting, right? Because you're like, oh, it's my wealth. I earned it. No, God gave it to you. Everything you have is from God, and it is technically his. 
he has he can take it away just as easily as he's given to you. And if you're not faithful in that little bit, how are you ever going to be faithful with quote unquote much, right? When how when when God restores all things and his people reign with Christ over over everything, right? That that's that's the issue there. Um and so no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Uh, so you need to decide which one you're serving. Are you being shrewd um, with the resources that he has, has given you? And the, the Pharisees, who it says were lovers of money, heard these things and start making fun of Jesus, uh, ridiculing him. And Jesus confronts them and he says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Like the things that you guys value, God hates. Um, and, and all you're doing with all this, this stuff, right? You, you are not being shrewd. You are not being like the guy in this parable. You're being foolish because this whole time, like you're, you are spending what God has given you, whatever those resources are, simply trying to make yourself look good before before men, um, and um, and so uh, then you have this interesting statement: the law and the prophets were until John. And since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Um, so here you have right these different these different kind of like eras. So. Here's here's another way in which you guys are not being shrewd, okay? In which you're you're not you're not um, deftly navigating the, the world that God has put you in, right? In a way with in, in aligned with God's priorities. No, instead you're you've got your own priorities. You're justifying yourself before men. You've made yourself experts in the law and the prophets. Well, guess what? They were the one. Yeah, that was the game in town until John came. And then we moved to a different phase. God started doing a new thing, and now, the and now the good the gospel of the kingdom is preached, and and everyone forces their way into it, which of course is another strange way to put it, right? And um, I think the key here um, is actually in the uh, the passive form of the verb here in the Greek. Um, what do I mean by that? Well. This is something that is uh, pointed out in James Edwards's excellent commentary on the book of Luke, and that is that um, that technically in 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 the Greek of of Luke the the verb here is passive; it's not active, and it's not a, impossible for a passive verb in Greek to be read in an active way. Those are called deponent uh, verbs; their form is passive, but they're to be read as active. Um, but it kind of makes a lot more sense here to read it as passive. What what do I mean by it? Well, easy. It, it, in an active sense, such as you have in the English Standard Version, right? It's the people who are coming into the kingdom who are doing the, the pushing, the pressing. But if it's passive, they're the ones being pushed or pressed. And so the way that Edwards puts it in his commentary, which I think is very helpful here, he says, the pressing, in other words, is not something people do. Uh, verse 16 is not about muscling one's way into God's favor, foxhole promises or resolutions or works intended to merit God's favor. It's about something done to people, all people, by the gospel. Verse 16 is thus conceptually parallel 
1423, God's redemptive love compels people far and wide to enter the kingdom. So in other words, that like, so the law and the prophets were, and then John came, and now the gospel of the kingdom is preached, and God is 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 pressing all, bringing, pushing all types of people towards this kingdom, and and here you are, you know, obsessing over uh, whether or not it's it's lawful to heal someone on a, on the Sabbath, and whether or not it's lawful to pick grain on the Sabbath. I think that's kind of what he's what he's getting at. Nevertheless, verse seventeen. All of this considered, I'm not saying that the law is irrelevant. I'm not saying that the law of God is therefore abolished by any of this. In fact, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So don't think what I'm saying means that God's word is now invalidated. It's just that now we've reached the point to which his word has been pointing all along, and things are going to be very different. And then finally, we end with a quick Luke's version of Jesus's divorce teachings, which we've seen, so I'm not going to belabor here. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband uh, commits adultery. So here, um, I've, I've spoken about this, uh, particularly I think the, the, the fullest um, version of this is given in, in Matthew, and so I just refer you uh, to my my comments there in Matthew 19, um, if if you want to revisit what I what I said about divorce, because this episode is already pretty long because we had some challenging stuff today. But thank you for sticking with me through it. And as always, I very much look forward to being with you tomorrow. Until then, keep reading scripture. Take care and bye bye.